Our sermon title this morning is uh, Sanctification. Is it me or is it God? Yes. Uh, Yes. As we begin this morning, please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We will be reading verses 12 and 13. And um, as you as you find your place in, in the scripture, uh, you might make note of your outline of our outline this morning. There will be three parts. Uh, the first section, first part is titled avoiding the extremes and finding the balance, avoiding the extremes and finding the balance. The second section examines verse 12 and is titled the believer's role work out your salvation the believer's role work out your salvation it has five points and all are sub points and all of those come from the text itself from verse 12 and the third and final section is titled God's role he is at work in you God's role, He is at work in you. It also has five points, and they all start with a P. So, uh, let's read our text together. This is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure let us bow in prayer dear heavenly father we ask you two uh, very simple and very important things right now first for uh, the words of the speaker this morning that they would be uh, right faithful to the text and would be glorifying to you be accurate to the text. And second, we pray for the listeners, the receivers this morning, that they would, uh, words would filter from their ears, to their minds, and their heart, take hold, take root, and would affect the change that you would have in us this morning. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When we come to the matter of sanctification, which is the subject of our text this morning, what is, what is the energy behind that? What is the force that accomplishes sanctification in us. How do we understand what accomplishes the progress in us? Sanctification being uh, us becoming more like Christ, growing in spiritual maturity, uh, emulating Christ more closely. What what causes that? What's the energy that drives that, makes that happen? Um, in other words, what... What brings us into sanctification and increases that in us? Is it me or is it him? Well, yes, it's both. Um, and this is not the only thing that's a seeming paradox or a, a, a conundrum that we would face. There are many others in Scripture. Consider Philippians. Who wrote the book of Philippians? Was it Paul or was it God? It's all of Paul's heart. It's all of his vocabulary. It's his personality. It's his words. He dictated it. We know that. And yet all scripture is inspired by God and breathed by him, right? So is it Paul or is it God? Consider the nature of Christ. Was Jesus Christ fully man or was he fully God? Yes, both. We know that he walked like a man. He performed miracles with the hands of a man. He thought with the the mind of a man. He was hungry. He thirsted. He was tired. He felt pain. 
He was fully man in the flesh. And yet he's also fully God. The perfect incarnation of absolute deity and man with no loss to either. So that's a, another uh, obvious uh, seeming paradox that we would see. Um, also your salvation. How does your salvation come about? Does it require your will, your free will to uh, choose to follow Christ, to set self aside? Or is it God who chose you from before the foundations of the earth were formed? So these aren't the, this is not the only place in Scripture where we would see a seeming paradox or some things that seem to be to us in conflict. In fact, John Murray said that in every major doctrine of the New Testament, there are seeming paradoxes that cannot be understood in the mind of men. Um, cannot be resolved in the mind of men. Now, there's two very different extremes that we want to consider here as we get started in this text uh, that are presented before us. And, and these are historical uh, positions. One is called quietism, and the other is called pietism. And they both describe how we work out our sanctification. Uh, the quietist believes that the, the believer holds a position that the believer is passive, is inactive in their sanctification. This is let go and let God, or I can't, he can. This is lay your life on the altar, let it, give it all to him, he takes control, and he drives your sanctification only. The pietist, on the other hand, is striving, active, working. My sanctification is my responsibility. I must do it. I must carry it forward. So two, two different extremes. extremes. Um, so you have on the one hand quietism, you're passive, let go and let God, leave it all to Him. On the other, it's all active, it's all me, it's all my works, it's all striving, effort, run the race, right? Um, and as you can imagine, with extremes, there are problems with each of them. Problems with the extreme of quietism is that I've surrendered. I've let go. I've let God. I've put my life on the altar. I've given it all to Him. It's now Christ alone living in me. So now what happens when I sin? We're going to sin. We're going to fail, right? There's going to be sin in our lives. Well, what happens to my sin? Whose responsibility is it? Whose fault is it? Well, it's not mine. I surrendered, right? I gave it all to God. I said, you're in control. But it's not God's fault. He's not the author of sin. It's never his fault. So now, what do we do about the responsibility, the, the consequences of my sin? Whose fault is it? So we know those are not biblically accurate views. So that's that's a problem we have to face that doesn't answer. Now the problem with the pietistic side, all striving, all effort, it's all my responsibility. But we know that as you work out your sanctification as a believer... That you're going to face two problems. First, if it's all you and it's all your effort, you're going to succeed and you will have pride. You will have pride because you achieved it. And when you fail, because you will, you'll be despondent. You'll have despair. Because if it's all you and there's no other resource to turn to, and I've failed, and I fail again, now what am I left with? There's no answer for that. So these two extremes are, are problems. So an overemphasis on the quietistic view, it's all God, I surrender, it's only Him, is problematic because it doesn't deal with the personal responsibility of my sin. And on the other hand, the overemphasis of the pietistic view, which says, I've got to do it all, 
then when I succeed, when there's fruits in my ministry, I get the glory, not God. And when I fail, I'm miserable because I now have nowhere else to turn, no other resource. Now, having read these two verses in Philippians and considered the two uh, opposite views, we might conclude that this is a very complicated issue. Very complicated, but it's really not. Paul addresses it rather simply. You notice that he doesn't try to blend the two together or harmonize them. He doesn't merge them and mediate and try to find some spot in the middle where both work. He just says, it's all God and it's all you. It takes everything that you are and you're striving and it takes everything that God is and his power working in you. It's both. And that's the balance. When we talk about balance this morning, it's not balance in that there's some spot in the middle where some of this one and some of that blend together. The balance is that it takes all of you and all of God to accomplish your sanctification. Earlier, uh, well, we didn't because I omitted that part. I was going to read 1 Corinthians 15.10. And we will do that here. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he's speaking spiritually here, not just of his salvation. Uh, he says, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. God has made me what I am. Now, that would sound like Paul's a quietist, right? It's all God. God has made me all that I am. It's all his grace. It's all of him, none of me. But then he says this, but I labored even more than all of them. And he's talking about other apostles there, by the way, not just other men and other disciples. He's comparing himself to quite quite the field. But he says, it's all my, my spiritual maturity, what, what has been born out in my ministry, the fruitfulness of it, is all by God's grace, but it's also because I labored more than all the others. And then he closes the verse, we're right back where he started and bookends it and says, but... Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. I am what I am because of God's grace, and I am what I am because I worked harder at it than most. I labored more than all the others. Look at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2.20. This will be a very familiar passage to you. We find Paul giving testimony again to the same thing. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, this is a favorite verse of the quietistic view, but they only stop right there. They take the verse out of context, and they don't read the second part of it that has the balance. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I'm no longer, I no longer live. What happens when you're crucified? You're, you're dead, right? You cease living. That's it. I'm dead, I step aside, Christ takes over, it's all Him. He lives it all out through me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. But then read the second part of the verse. He says, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. In the first half of the verse, he says, I died, Christ lives. And then he turns right around and says, I live. Christ living in me. I'm active. I'm carrying it out. It's ongoing. And again, if you only read the second half or the first half, you wouldn't see the balance that Paul maintains here. Here's an illustration I think you might find very helpful. Uh, This would be a great one to take away from this morning and, and remember. 
You don't have to turn there, but just think about it in your mind. It'd be familiar to you. Exodus chapter 14. You have the nation of Israel led by Moses. They've escaped captivity in Egypt. And they're out in the desert. They fled. And they find themselves in a tremendously difficult spot. In the proverbial rock and a hard place. The rock being the Dead Sea, which will prove their drowning if they go forward. And behind them in hot pursuit is Pharaoh in all of his anger and vengeance trying to destroy them with his army. They're riding on chariots. They're fully armed. They're of military might of the time. And the Israelites who were unarmed were about to be slaughtered. But Moses was so confident that he spoke out to the people and he shouts to them in verse 13. And this is what he says. Do not fear. Stand by. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. The Lord will fight for you. Now, that was great faith. That's that's great faith from Moses. Don't be afraid. Stand still. See the salvation of the Lord. But listen to God's response. The Lord immediately replied back from heaven and he said this. Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Tell them to go forward. Think about that. It's not stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. It's go forward and see the salvation of the Lord. Go forward. God was going to give them the victory. And he was going to do it in a way that no man could take credit for. That God would get all of the glory for saving the people of Israel. But he wasn't going to do it until they moved forward. This is precisely what Paul is saying in Philippians to us this morning. He's saying, it isn't stand still and see the victory of the Lord in your life. It isn't yield, surrender, let go and let God. It's go forward, move. See the victory of the Lord in your life through sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now the Old Testament the New Testament give us many more examples of this, but uh, alas, some things have to be uh, taken out for the sake of time. Uh, So let's move on to section two. And let's consider the believer's role. Work out your salvation. Look again at verse 12. The major statement, the main verb, the main idea here is work out your salvation. This is a continuing command, an ongoing action. Continually be working out your salvation. Now, it's important to note what Paul is not saying here. He is not saying work at your salvation. He is not saying work for your salvation. He is not saying work up your salvation. Salvation is a gift of grace, not works, right? He's simply saying work out your salvation. Produce on the outside of your life what God has put in your inward nature as a redeemed believer. Work it out. Bring it out. Let it be seen. What God has worked in by way of salvation, you are to work out by way of sanctification. Now, there's another source on this verb, work out, that also provides a great illustration for us this morning and and might help you understand this even more. There's an ancient scholar, Strabo, who was a Roman, 
And he wrote about 60 years before Christ about some silver mines that the Romans possessed that were in Spain. His empire grew for the Romans. They uh, captured some territory. They owned this land of Spain, and there were silver mines there. And the Romans were mining out this silver that was already deep in the ground. And he uses this same verb that Paul uses here in our text, in the original Greek, of work out. What he's describing is there's silver that's already in the mine. It's valuable. It's already there. The Romans owned it, but it does no good in the ground. They had to work. They had to go put the effort in to get it out of the ground. They had to go dig and bring it out. It took time. It took work. It was a challenge. And that's a great way to see that, of extracting a resource that is already in you, that is already there. Mine it out. Bring forth what's already there that God put in you. I am to mine out of my life what God has richly deposited there in the manner of salvation. Produce precious nuggets of personal character that demonstrate what God has already accomplished in my life and what He is accomplishing. Day-to-day holy living. Daily conduct. Mine out what has been placed in your heart. Now there's five elements that we're going to discuss here uh, briefly that will help you in this process of mining out, of working out your salvation. Five things you need to understand that will help you in uh, working out this through your daily living and sanctification. Number one, look to Christ as your example. Look to Christ as your example. Understand that Christ is your example. What's the very first words that Paul says in verse 12? So then, right? So then. What does that tell us? If you'd uh, taken Luke's hermeneutic class, which I think we're going to have again soon, um, a little more more complete this time, hopefully, um, you have seen that's a clue in Scripture that tells us, look back at what we just said, right? Um, And so Paul is saying, so then. In light of what we just talked about, what I just wrote to you, so then, look back to verses 5 to 11. Look at the example of Christ, the model that He is. This is where Paul talks about Christ humbling Himself, becoming a bondservant, lowering Himself, even to death on a cross. And that because He lowered Himself, then He was exalted. Because of His humility, He then was exalted. He humbled Himself, emptied Himself. He didn't hold being equal to God as something to possess. It was Christ Jesus who was thereby exalted by God. So Christ Jesus is the model. So then, work out your salvation. So then, just as you have seen the example of what a saved person is to look like, be like Him. So then, just as you have seen what humility looks like, be like Him. So then, as you've been humbled and then exalted in the right time, be like Him. That promise is for you, believer. Look forward to that. Be like Him. So then, work out your own salvation so that in the process you desire and long to pursue Christ's righteousness. There's a second thing you need to understand here. Understand you are loved. Understand that you are loved. Well, why is that important? Well, in the process of working out your sanctification, you're going to fail, right? 
You're going to fail. Paul is saying here, he's, he's reminding the church in Philippi that he loves, that they are loved. So then, my beloved, there's some space in our relationship for you to fail. There's some grace that Paul is saying here to them. There's some space that also represents the heart of God towards us. There's a grace that allows failure and redemption to be picked back up and keep going through the process. Don't get discouraged. Discouraged. Don't give up. Um, that there's a mercy in Paul that demonstrates the mercy of Christ. A patience that he has when he says to them, "My beloved." We know that there are some problems in the church in Philippi. Um, two ladies, their names are kind of complicated, so just take my word for it. But they had some problems. There are lots of other problems. Paul was continually talking to them about uh, their pride. There's some disunity that was there in Philippi. But in all of that, they were still his beloved. They were still his beloved. And in that love and affection for them was some space for their failure. There was some grace and there was patience. And that also reflects the heart of God towards us. I don't know if you if you noticed and uh, took note of this last week when Rodrigo was preaching uh, Psalm 2. And the nations are raging against God. They're rebelling. Uh, they're devising a vain thing, Scripture tells us. Do you remember the first response that God had? He scoffed, right? He scoffed. And then... The next verse says his, he turned his, his anger. He turned to anger. He was angry with them. And we read on about um, his, his chastising and his, his warnings to them. And yet in the last three verses, did you notice what God says to them? He warns them. He calls them to have discernment. And he says, honor the son that he may not become angry. For his wrath may soon be kindled. He warns them. There's patience. There's space there. Why didn't he just wipe them off the face of the earth? These rebellious, idolatrous, pagan nations. And yet, he shows them grace. His long-suffering. If that's how God treats these rebellious nations, then how much more would he treat you as a believer? As one who has your Holy Spirit inside of him. Who's his chosen one. His child. So we see his grace and his long suffering here, his loving kindness. Aren't you happy that as a Christian, there's grace for you to work out your sanctification, to grow in your spiritual maturity, that you can fail and be lifted back up? We think of Peter and his redemption and Christ restoring him and filling him and lifting him back up. And he becomes the rock on which the church is founded. So in God's love, there's forgiveness, there's mercy, there's grace, and there's restoration. So as you're working out your salvation, understand your example and understand that there's grace and there's space for you in God's love. Third, understand the necessity of obedience. The necessity of obedience. He says in verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, just as you have always obeyed. And this represents to us and demonstrates a pattern of obedience that should exist in our lives as Christians, as believers, as followers of Christ. A pattern that Paul describes in Ephesians 2.10 where he says, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand 
so that we would walk in them. The Christian life is basically a pattern of obedience. You know when that pattern of obedience started? At salvation. Have you ever thought about that? That salvation is a command that you obey? We, we talk about uh, sharing the gospel with others. But the gospel is a command. Repent. Turn away from your sin. Follow Christ. Die to self. Lay down your life. Right? Stop following self and follow Christ. It's a command. You ever think about that? That you're actually reiterating a command from God when you share the gospel? It's a command. So when we obey that, when we believe on Jesus... We're initiating a pattern of obedience in our life which should continue on past that initial point of accepting and responding to the gospel. Obey. 2 Thessalonians 1.8, Paul says, he's speaking here about the retribution that will come against the ungodly when Jesus returns from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Paul says, he will deal out retribution to those who do not know God. And listen to this. And to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You see, receiving Christ is an act of obedience to God's command. God commands the world to hear Christ. He says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Christ commands the world to believe. The apostles command believers to follow Christ. To hear his words. So at salvation, you are always acknowledging Jesus Christ as your Lord. And in your life, you are always following the commands of a commander. You're always obedient. So if we are to work out our salvation, it requires we understand Christ is our example. We understand that you are loved and there's some space. But in that grace and in that space, we are also called to obedience. We must obey. So fourth... Paul tells us we must understand our personal responsibility. Understand our personal responsibility. Isn't it human nature to blame others for our problems, other people? And that what we tend to do? To make excuses? Say, well, if I was just in a better church, or if I had better teaching, or if my parents had raised me differently or shared these things with me, then my spiritual life might be stronger. That's not what Paul tells us here. He says, so then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, the assumption here is that they need to do it on their own. Do it on their own. That's why later in the verse he says, work out your own salvation. You don't, you don't need me. Do it on your own. Paul was a uniquely gifted man of God. Extremely talented. We all know that. He could build a tremendous dependency. We read in Corinthians where people incorrectly said, well, I'm of Paul. I'm a follower of Paul. And Paul corrects them. You could easily become too dependent on Paul as your spiritual leader, right? So dependent and lean on him so much that in a sense, if he moved, you would fall, right? If he moved, you fell. But at the time he writes this letter, he's in prison. And he's saying to them, in my presence you obeyed, now much more obey in my absence. You you may not have me again. He's telling them, you have the duty and the responsibility 
to increase in your spiritual maturity and your sanctification without me. You have all the resources you need to work out your own salvation. Let me ask you a question. Do you rely solely on Sunday mornings and the preaching from this pulpit in Kerrville Bible Church to affect your sanctification? Is that the only time you're fed is on a Sunday morning in church once a week? I hope not. I hope not. You shouldn't. We've said already this morning that we're blessed to have a a gifted, able uh, teaching pastor in Chris McKnight. And there's resources that we have in this church that would go beyond the wildest dreams of Christians around the world. But they couldn't imagine that we have these kind of resources around us in this place. But don't lean just on those things. You are responsible for your sanctification. You have a Bible. Read it. You can pray to the God of the universe who wants a relationship with you and wants to hear your prayers. Pray to Him. Don't let this time once a week be the only time that your sanctification is affected, that you're fed, that you grow. You have the very Spirit of God inside you. If you recall in John chapter 16, Jesus is in the upper room. He's with his disciples. These are the last hours that he's going to be able to spend with them. And he pours into them encouragement and love and forewarnings. Everything he wants them to hear. And I'm capturing a few pieces of verses here. But he tells them about that it is to their advantage that he leave because the Holy Spirit will come to them, the helper. He says, it is to your advantage that I go away. I will send him to you. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. So, if we as believers are going to work out to mine out the salvation that is in us, we must look to Christ as our example. We must know that you're loved and there's some space for failure. We must understand the requirement for obedience. And we also must understand the personal responsibility that we have in pursuing our own sanctification. Fifth and finally, you must understand the consequences of sin. You must understand the consequences of sin. While there is space for you to fail and grace that God continually pours out on us, you must understand what sin does to our relationship with God. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. He's saying there should be a healthy fear in your heart of offending God. A healthy fear. There should be trembling when you when you consider the consequences of your sin. The fear that Paul describes here is a healthy fear, an anxiety to do what is right. Fear means holy awe, or God, godly awe, which grows out of the recognition of our weakness in the face of temptation. And what we face, the power of temptation and sin. Now, what does this, what does this healthy fear do for us? Well, it, it brings about a reverence that motivates us, right? A reverence from God to desire to follow Him, to obey Him that motivates us. 
It puts you on guard so that you don't stumble and lose your joy. It keeps you from offending God. It causes you not to violate your testimony before an unbelieving world. And it keeps you from negating your usefulness to the body of Christ and in your ministry. Let me read this from Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Heaven is my throne, says God speaking. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. God is asking, what do I need from you? What can you do for me? What would you provide for me that I am in need of? What can you give me or do for me? The whole whole universe is my dwelling place. And then God says, hear this. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. God is looking to dwell in the heart of a person who takes his word seriously, who trembles at his word. In order to have this healthy fear, you have to do more than just acknowledge that you are a sinner. You have to go past that. You have to realize how terrible, how, how terribly offensive your sin is to God. And if you really love God, then you don't want to sin against Him and offend the God that you love. So how are we going to work out our salvation? Well, we have to first look to our example in Christ. Remember that you are loved. Understand the role of obedience in your life. Understand you have the personal responsibility to pursue your sanctification because all the necessary resources are there in you and available to you. And you have to understand the consequences of your sin towards God. So with all that in mind, make a supreme effort to work out your own salvation. Now we said that there's balance here. So let's look to section three now. This is God's role. He is at work in you. Let's take a look at verse 13. It says, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. The God of the Bible is a loving, caring, personal, relating God who makes demands on men that we cannot fulfill and thus comes and works in us to fulfill the very commands and his own requirements that he desires. That is a unique distinction from Christianity that separates Christianity from other major world religions. That that God who requires of us comes and lives, resides in us, To affect the very things he commands of us. Have you ever thought about that? We could go into a lot this morning if we had time to discuss uh, the Hindu religion where their gods are just totally abstract, distant, impersonal, uh, don't even, they're not even a male or female being, they're just, they're just something out there that's totally abstract. Um, Fascinating that there are 1.4 or 1.6 billion people in the world 
captured by that false religion totally lack the understanding of a personal God who wants to reside in you and have a relationship in you while he works out what he requires. So let's consider five elements here. Five elements of God at work in you. They all focus on the one who is at work in us. First, let's note his person. His person. It says in verse 13, it is God who is at work. Literally, the Greek says, God is the one who is at work. God is the one at work. No one else but God. The very God who created the universe is at work inside you. He is that personal, that intimate, that concerned with us that he literally works in us. That's where Paul starts as his person. We talk with God. We hear him speak. Throughout scripture, Old Testament writers speak of God as talking, of hearing, of seeing, smelling, breathing. Isaiah even says he whistles. They speak of God as having a heart. Scripture speaks of the face of God, the eyes of God, the ears of God, the hands of God, the feet of God. They say he walks, he goes to war, he's described as loving, pleading, condemning, weeping, laughing, comforting, and caring. All of that is to identify God and his personhood. We can relate to him. It is said that Moses spoke to God face to face. Exodus thirty three eleven says, Moses spoke to God as one talks to his friend. That intimate. That personal. And let's note also, God himself is working out our salvation. That's why sanctification can't be deterred. The very God whose will is never thwarted, his will is never defeated, it's always accomplished. He always wins. He is always victorious in what he sets out to do. That is the God who is working out your sanctification. He would never work out the path and the plan for his own son to die on the cross for your justification to then leave you alone and work out sanctification just as it were. Just let it unfold. It's him working it out. He's never thwarted. He's never frustrated. That's the God who is at work in you. Secondly, Paul reflects on his power, on his power. Not only his person, but his power. He says it is God who is at work in you. And the verb work there is energeho. That's Greek. I have no idea how to speak it, but Google is very helpful for these things. So energeho. We get the word energy from it. It means to put forth power or work effectively. God is the energizer. It's his power that drives our sanctification. We persevere because we are energized by him. And this power that God has that's working in us, it is limitless. It is limitless. He has all power. Paul says in Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, According to what? According to the power that works within us. 
God can accomplish and does accomplish through you more than you can ever dream or ever imagine. Abundantly beyond is what Paul says. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Paul says in Philippians 4. And that is not just a slogan or a label for a t-shirt for some athlete. That's not just a cliche. That's a statement of the power of God to affect the heart of a believer. There's a wonderful illustration of this in 2 Chronicles chapters 29 and 30. Hezekiah became the king of Judah at the age of 25, and he reigned for 29 years. And his king kingship and rule is characterized uh, beautifully. It says by Scripture that he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all his father David had done. He was a godly man, and he deemed it essential that Israel get their spiritual lives back in order. The temple had fallen into disrepair. Israel's spiritual state had fallen into uh, lackluster. It was just forgotten. They were barely celebrating Passover. And to really very succinctly try to summarize two chapters in Chronicles, Hezekiah sets out to clean up their spiritual house and their physical house and get it back into order. He consecrates the priests and the Levites, and then he sets out and has this tremendous slaughter of animals to sacrifice to God. Hundreds, even thousands of rams and bulls and goats that are sacrificed as a burnt offering to the Lord. And it brings about this incredible, immediate um, revival, spiritual revival in the nation of Israel. They had neglected it in past years, the Passover. But now Hezekiah sends out commands through the kings and the priests to the priests and the scribes. He sends out this command and says, we're all going to celebrate the Passover as a nation. We're going to continue this revival. So in chapter 30, verse 9, it says, If you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and return to this land. For the Lord, your God, is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. Do this, then this blessing, right? Obey. Now here's this. Listen, this is the key. It says in verse 12, The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. Isn't that fascinating? The king and the princes were commanding the people of God to return because it was the word of the Lord to them. And God turns right around and says, command the people to return to me. And then in verse 12, it says that he energized, gave them the heart to do it. He caused the fulfillment of his own command in their hearts. So back to our original question. Is it God or is it me? The Israelites obeyed. It took all of their obedience. It took all of their faithfulness. It took all of Hezekiah's spiritual leadership. And yet it was all energized by God, wasn't it? It was all God. And it was all them. So we've seen his person, his power, and now third, his presence. For it is God who is at work in you. God in you. He's not working on you. He's not working for you. He is working in you. What an incredible reality. We already talked about the Holy Spirit's presence in you. That Christ would say to his disciples, It is to your advantage that I leave because the Helper will come to you. 
First Corinthians 3.16, Paul says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? You are the temple of God where God lives. So His person, His power, and His presence. Fourth, His purpose. His purpose. God is trying to produce something very specific in us. So what is it? What is it? Well, look at the text. It says He is working in us both to will and to work. Or to will and to do, right? To will and to work or to will and to do. And it's easy to read that verse incorrectly and think that the will and to work is to point toward God, but it's actually in reference to us. It's in reference to us. In other words, there are two things God wants to energize in us, our will and our work, our desire and our deed. God wants to will, wants us to will what is righteous. He wants us to do what is right. He wants us to want to do what is right. So He works on that in us. He causes it. We know that all of our behavior that works itself out starts with our will, right? It all starts with our will. It starts with the motives, the desires of our hearts. Ezra 1.5 says, The heads of the fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord. They worked out rebuilding the house of the Lord because God had stirred up the will in their hearts to do that. God had stirred it up. God energized their will. That's where he begins with us in this internal work. What you do is a product of what you desire. So as we grow in sanctification, God works this will up in us, what we could call a holy discontentment. That's holy is H-O-L-Y, discontentment. There's a conviction of sin. Do you ever get tired of your sin? You get tired of your sin? You get tired of the same sin that causes you to stumble? Or that sin that sneaks up on you and trips you up right as your relationship with God is just thriving and wonderful, affects your fellowship with Him? There's a discontentment that God brings about in you to help affect your will. And that leads to holy, H-O-L-Y, aspiration. Aspiration. You want more. You look to people around you, other believers in this church, other heroes of the faith, to Paul, to many others that are examples to us, and you say, I want to be like that. I want to be like them. You aspire to more. You want to please God more. So you're discontent, then you aspire to something more, and then ultimately it drives uh, works itself out in your deeds and what you do. It affects your behavior, right? So what begins with discontentment, the conviction of sin, leads to holy aspiration where we long for righteousness, and then we resolve to do what is right, what is pleasing in the sight of the Lord. And God energizes our will and our work that way. Fifth and finally, His pleasure. Why is God doing all this? Well, look back to verse 13. At the end of the verse... For His good pleasure. For His pleasure. Do you understand that when you do what is right, that it is pleasing to God? Have you ever thought about how incredible that is? That something you could do would please the Creator of the universe? That that would be satisfying to Him and pleasing to Him? He takes pleasure in you. He wants your best 
Because your best is what pleases him the very most. And he delights in that. So the Christian is working out with maximum effort. And God is working in to accomplish his own pleasure. Let's conclude here. The distinctiveness of Christianity is that we know and serve a personal God who dwells in us and works in us. He provides for us and to us what He requires. And that's the balance. It takes all of us and it takes all of Him. So don't be a quietist who passively surrenders and let go and let God do it all while I sit back and watch. But be actively engaged in putting to death the flesh and pursuing Him. Pursuing a relationship with Him and working out your sanctification. And work out the precious treasure that's been put inside you. Mine it out. Bring that out. Do you remember where we started this morning with the quietist that said, do nothing? And the pietist said, do everything? God says, you do everything. I'll do everything, and together we'll work out sanctification. Let's pray. And pray this in your heart with me, if you would. God, you are at work right now in the heart of every Christian, myself included. What are you causing me to will and to do? What habit do you want to see changed? Where is my obedience lacking that I may please you more? Where am I failing to see the deep consequences of my personal sin? Father, we ask that you would energize and stir up our hearts to move forward and not stand still. That we may see your sanctification work itself out in our lives. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.